You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Now, it's that time of year where we are trying to organize and prep and plan for the upcoming season. And some of the gear that we use takes batteries. Now, you should go visit your local Interstate Battery store or visit interstatebatteries.com to check out all the different varieties of batteries that they offer. They have truck batteries they have batteries for your trail cameras they have batteries for your rangefinder and everything else that is electronic that you use for your hunting equipment they have batteries for that interstatebatteries.com awesome company check them out ladies and gentlemen welcome to another episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson. You know that. And today, we're going to be talking with new friend that I met down in Texas. Uh, his name is Taylor Pardue, and he is an outdoor writer, and he is an outdoor lover, and he loves archery and hunting in general. And we have a little bit of a, a BS session and a little bit of a hunter profile podcast and uh, just really good conversation with a guy who, like all of us, is nuts about hunting. We talk about his transition from, you know, hunting on private ground to now he's actually going to public land up in Pennsylvania from his home state of North Carolina and uh, we talk about that transition we talk about what his expectations are going into his first full year hunting public ground and it's just really exciting uh, for him because this is something completely different than what he's used to and um, I think for all of us who in the past have hunted public ground or do hunt public ground I think uh, this is a real good way to reflect back on how we all kind of have cut our teeth, you know, not necessarily on public ground, but just cut our teeth in general and how we were introduced into hunting. So we got a really, really cool podcast today. Now, it's commercial time, and I always say how kick-ass this product is and how long I've been using it and how awesome it is and I beat the shit out of my equipment and uh, that is ripcord arrow rests right and they have a variety of string driven and limb driven um, uh, rests that you can you know that you can take a look at but I have been using the code red for I want to say 12 years now and for a while there before I got a new one I had one ripcord rest for I want to say seven to eight years before I changed it out with a new one. And uh, 
Uh, that's not because I needed to change it out. It's because I got a new one when I start, signed up with a partnership with this company. And I'm telling you right now, it is a very durable product. It works every single time. And it's just a great company. It's a veteran-owned company. It's an American company. And uh, it's just a, a really good company backed with really good products. Now, their, their uh, latest brand new rest is the lock and that is one of their limb driven systems and uh the the new ripcord lock and i'm just going to read something straight off their website uh is a limb driven rest with the ability to pre-cock the launcher for full containment this gives you the added stability of a limb driven rest with a peace of mind that full containment offers so what's kind of cool about that is um, it's fully contained. Your arrow is fully contained. It's not going to kind of fall off when you're maybe on a spot and stock hunt or you're having to make a quick move for an elk hunt or an antelope hunt or whatever. Uh, it's Your arrow is going to be where it needs to be all the time, even if it gets bumped. And I've run into that uh, when I was elk hunting in Colorado this past year, just bumping into everything, and my arrow stayed exactly where it stayed. So... That's good. Uh, you need to go to ripcordarrowrest.com and check out their product line. Again, r- tons of kick-ass equipment. Uh, you need to go check it out. So there's that. We've done the commercial. We've done the intro. It's time for the podcast with Taylor. All right, on the phone with me right now, Mr. Taylor Pardue. How you doing, man? Hey, doing good, Dan. Thanks. Hope you are. Yeah, I'm doing well, man. I tell you what, it's been... When did we go to Texas together? How long has that been? It's only been a few weeks. I think the next to last week in May. Right. But it seems like a lot longer than that. This summer's flying by. Right, right. Uh, So like two months. It's been like two months since we were in Texas together. Yeah, two months. That sounds about right. And I am just now getting over my chigger bites they are finally going away i tell you what i've never had chigger bites so bad than i did when i went down to texas okay i'm glad to hear that because leading up to this podcast i'm like i knew me and you would get bit pretty bad right like, he's gonna ask me about my chigger bites and i still had the spots <laughs> and i was like okay i don't want to be the weird pale kid who still has bites but to hear you say that you still got them i was like okay you know i mean good company now right right so yeah they they are awful i have been bitten by fire ants when i lived um in north carolina and got into a nest of them in south carolina too i would much rather have fire ants than sugars really crazy as that sounds because oh yeah at least that is you're hit and you're done in a couple days you know everything's gone these chicken bites lasted forever yeah I wouldn't be surprised if you take a real uh, good look at my skin if I had some permanent scars from the itching, and I think that's what gets you right. You just yeah. you're 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 itching without realizing you're itching, and next thing you know, you got a bloody spot or whatever, and now you yeah. got a scab, and now your legs look like you're you know hooked on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I woke up in the middle of the night scratching. I had no idea, and like you said, I had worn the blood out of a couple spots, so it's some nasty stuff. Right. Um, right. Well, and, and for some reason, I thought they were more like ticks, like you'd kind of see them. No. Yeah. Like, and I guess the one that was strange for me was, um, so for the audience, you know, where we were staying at, they had a nice uh, outdoor archery range where you could walk back and forth. It's, it's pretty closely mowed, you know, not tall grass. Right. 
the places where I was thinking like tick mindset, the more I tried to stay away from long grass, it seemed like the worse it got. Yeah. The, the shorter grass was where I was getting tore up. Yeah. Yeah. So, very counterintuitive. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's that thing that we, we deal with. I typically get them once, uh, once a year, really bad. Uh, and, oh, okay. and that's, you know, hopefully that Texas trip was one where I don't get them anymore, but you know, okay. I always do something stupid, like go and check a trail camera, <laughs> walk through a CRP field, um, you know, a day or two after it rains. For some reason, I, I don't know, I have no scientific, you know, basis to back this up. But, uh, you know, you go walk through a CRP field, check the trail camera, walk back to your truck. You know, nothing happens. And, and then later that night, you start itching again. You're like, ah, why don't I ever mm-hmm. wear, why don't I ever wear long pants? I'm an idiot. Well, a buddy of mine, he's another magazine editor. He was telling me somebody had told him the secret was clear nail polish. Does that sound right? And kind of like painting over top of the uh, chigger bites. Hmm. I've never tried it yet, but shoot, if I ever get hit as bad as I did when we were in Texas, I'm definitely going to have to try something. Right. The homemade re- remedies is always something that uh, really interests me because, you know, over the years <laughs> I've talked to a lot of people um, about just being outside and hunting and, and, you know, like poison Ivy remedies and, um, tick bites and all this stuff. It's like, well, here's what you need. You get to take a little bit of vinegar. Then you need a little bit of rattlesnake venom. Then you need, you know, you need a dandelion flower and you mix that together and it goes away by the end of the day. I'm like, uh, okay. I don't believe you. (laughs) But see, here's the secret. By the time you collect all those ingredients and get it mixed, they're going away anyway. So it's just, it's, it's mental. It's all mental. That's right. That's right. I wish it was all mental. I wish I could have just like uh, visualized in my head the chigger bites going away, and they. But that you know that never happens. I, like I said, I, I'm glad I'm not the only one who got hit. Right. At least we're suffering in company. That's right. And now they're gone. And now, it oh, here way. it is July, and man hunting season is knocking at our door and I feel like time has just absolutely flown by this, uh, in 2019 so far. It really has. It, it really has. Uh, and thankfully so, you know, the middle part of the year has went the fastest. So we're getting back to hunting season real quick. That's right. It doesn't seem like it's drug along like previous years have done. Yeah. Right. Right. So, you know, I met you down in, in uh, Texas when we were on that hunt for Faradine, and uh, that was kind of a, a blogger, writer, podcasting hunt where they pulled people from the uh, the media side of things into uh, into yep. a hunt. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about what do you do for a living? Okay. Uh, so like Dan said, I think earlier, I am a magazine editor. I'm actually the associate editor of Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine right now. Uh, I've been an outdoor writer, whether freelance or, uh, editing at other magazines for about six years now. I started out, well, like I said, I freelance some, then I was the associate and digital editor of sporting classics magazine. If you've ever heard of that, it's, uh, uh, published in South Carolina and I lived down there for about two and a half years. And then I worked for a regional magazine in North Carolina called our state and I was the digital editor there for about six months. But then when I found out about Peterson's bow hunting, I applied and you know, just dream job. I had to get up here as quick as I could. So I've been here about a year now. Right. Uh, that, at Peterson's. That's based out of Pennsylvania. 
Yeah, yeah we're in Harrisburg. Harrisburg, okay. Uh, we're part of Outdoor Sportsman Group. Yep. So in this office, we have Bow Hunter, Peterson's Bow Hunting, and then uh, Fly Fisherman Magazine and Firearm News are all here, plus a couple of digital uh, workers who manage different titles. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of taking a step back and, um, you know, talk about a little bit of the early days, what got you into wanting to write or what led you to this, this dream job that you have? Uh, so I, I guess I'm trying to think how far back to go. So long story short was always strong in English and school and stuff like that, but I never had a passion for it. You know, it came easy, but, um, you know, I never really thought of how you can make money doing that. And I was never like a journal keeper or anything like that. So I wasn't recreationally writing. Uh, but I ended up going to NC State uh, in there in Raleigh, North Carolina, and got my wildlife biology degree. A year into that, I thought, what am I doing? I'm not a math and science guy. Uh, so first summer there at school, I'm interning, um, working on a fisheries project. North Carolina, the, the Wildlife Commission sponsors a magazine called Wildlife in North Carolina. And so it's sort of, I don't really know how it all works, but it's affiliated with the Wildlife Commission put out by them. So they sent riders out, or a rider, to come interview us for a project that we were working on. So we're out there in the field, and she comes and she's photographing, interviewing us and everything. And I got to thinking, I was like, I think I can manage this where I finish my degree in four years, still get my wildlife degree, do an English minor, something like that, and still work for the state, still have benefits and stuff like that, but I can do something that's more geared towards my, not even my interest, but um, towards my um, passion. Oh, what would you call it? Passion for the well, not even passion, but towards my talents. Oh, my talents, cause like, English. You know, definitely English-minded. Yes. But the math and science was not working. I was like, so I can do this. I can still be around hunting and fishing, be around the outdoors and do that. So I started pursuing that. I talked to my... Um, uh, my college advisor, and he was actually in the same hunting club as Eddie Nickens, the uh, editor at large of Field and Stream. And Eddie actually lives, a, you know, right near uh, my uh, NC State. So uh, my college advisor put me in touch with Eddie, and Eddie started telling me, "Okay, there's kind of two ways you can do this. You can go to New York straight out of college and get into the media industry, you know, full bore, or he said you can do kind of like I did." And he said, "I." Worked for non or worked with nonprofits doing newsletters, stuff like that. You know, being able to work from the country and still be able to get into the industry that way. And right. It's a little slower, but he said that's the way I prefer to do it. And that just it really hit home. That was what I I wanted to be around hanging fishing. And I thought this is the way. This is a way to take God given talent and put it together with interest. Yeah. And it's just been off to the races ever since. Right. Um, ended up going back. I worked as a newspaper reporter for a little bit for about a year out of college and, you know, enjoyed it. It was a good way to get uh, my byline out there and stuff. But I, I thought I need to go back and get a specific communications degree. So I went back and basically double majored at two different colleges and got done in about five years with two degrees. And while I was there, I met uh, his name is Dan Kibler. He is just the best guy. Him and Eddie both have been such a blessing to me, uh, helping me get into the industry. He is the editor of Carolina Sportsman Magazine. It's a regional hunting and fishing magazine. He let me start freelancing for him, and then oh, maybe a year or two later, 
no, not even that long, probably about a year later, of freelancing, he introduced me with uh, Sporting Classics, and I've been editing ever since. Nice. So you had this passion uh, for the outdoors, you know, your whole life, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. And then you found out through school that English and writing came easy. So you decided to take somewhat of a subtle way into combining those two. And that kind of led you to um, your first couple jobs or contracts or whatever, uh, writing, mm-hmm. writing in the outdoors. Now, when I think of outdoor writing, I think of, you know, hey, five ways to kill a buck during the rut, right? Everybody knows those articles, mm-hmm. right? Is that how you started out or did you write about something completely different? Hmm. There is an element of that. Um, more of what Dan was kicking uh, stories over to me to write about were kind of, I don't want to say oddities, but really uh, almost kind of like this happened to me stories. Uh, right. The first one I ever wrote for him was a guy, and I'm blanking on the name now. He was a linebacker, I think, for Clemson. That sounds right. Right. And I think he was hunting in Georgia. It's either really southern South Carolina or he was in Georgia. But he was hog hunting with some friends, and they got tore up by a really big hog. Like, I think one dog died, um, Kevlar vest, that whole stuff. So kind of doing these really specific, in the moment, almost newspaper-like stories on the outdoors. And I just fell in love with that because um, it was kind of a good blend. You know, you were telling a story, but there was still that kind of how-to element too. Yeah. So there's there, there's a lot you can do, especially now that digital has opened up. You can do these shorter pieces that don't have to fill you know, 2,000 uh, 2, words on a printed page. Yeah, um, absolutely. So there's a lot, yeah. So uh, funnily enough, jumping back a step, you were saying that I had hunted my whole life. Surprisingly not. Uh, I actually came from a family that nobody hunted in. Uh, oh, really? My grandpa had like, oh, yeah. My grandpa had like squirrel hunted when I was he was young, uh, but that was about it. So I turned 16, was just never a, a big ball sports guy. So I turned 16, and I was like, I just want to do something manly. Like, what's the manly thing I feel? <laughs> Killing a deer, that's it. <laughs> um, so we actually had some family friends who helped me get involved with uh, with hunting and you know, placing my first stand and stuff like that. And my mom drove me like 30 minutes away to a town where I could do my uh, uh, hunter safety course. And it would just kind of went from there. So... I really didn't start uh, hunting until I was 16 and could go on my own. Gotcha. Gotcha. But, oh, that's awesome. Anyway. That's awesome. Now, let, let me ask you this, right? Sure. When you're 16 and you're talking to um, your parents who are not hunters, right? <laughs> you're saying, yeah. I want to be a hunter now. What was their reaction to, to that? Uh, my folks are great. Just yeah. absolute sport. Like I said, my mom took time to drive me 30 minutes uh, away to another neighboring town so I could do the class. I forget what it was. It was like the summer leading up to that fall, and that was the next course so I could be able to hunt in the fall. And she was willing to take me over. My dad was all for it, you know, uh, trying to get me a gun and help me to get started and everything. And then we had the family friends too. So uh, just tons of support. My my folks are great. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's probably unusual, but but thankfully they were – yeah, they were they were all on board for it. Well, I tell you what, I hear lots of stories like that. Um, uh, well, and obviously, I get to 
Uh, I'm surrounded by that. But there are a lot of stories out there that we've covered on this podcast that are guys uh, and gals who are, you know, just something taps them on the shoulder and says, you're going to be a hunter. And Mm -hmm. that's with parents or grandparents who are not hunters and they go in and they have, you know, they, they teach themselves. They, uh, they take the classes themselves. They, they have a really difficult learning curve because they don't have a mentor. Um, and I, although I started Mm -hmm. hunting early on, most of my bow hunting experience is teach yourself, learn the hard way type of route through, through life. So, when you were 16 and you decided to be a deer hunter and you actually started hunting, how was that learning curve for you? I mean, not bad. It was more of just the, uh, maybe the location. Like I said, we had great family friends. They helped me sight in guns and, and learn stuff like that. And how we plant the sand or uh, place the first stand. It was more a matter of, we had family land, um, Northwestern North Carolina, about an hour north of Charlotte. So not like prime real estate by any stretch. And then you know, we had about 40 acres, but we had neighboring landowners who had probably for decades. Um, right. My grandpa had owned the land, but not really hunted it or anything. So they just kind of treated it like their own. So I was uh-huh. constantly dealing with four wheelers and trespassing and people who were like, oh yeah, I know where you're hunting. Yeah. I, I used to hunt under such and such tree. But what in the world are you talking about? You don't just come out and say, yeah, I trespass, whatever. <laughs> but that happened several times. We were like, uh, what are you doing that now? Oh, such and such. Reason. Oh, yeah, I, I killed the biggest thing over there the other day. What? Just unreal. Yeah. So had plenty of uh, access, had plenty of support, just kind of dealing with the neighbors kind of thing. Right. So we saw a deer, and that first year I, I could have shot a little spike, but or no, a buttonhead, but held off and you know, I didn't wasn't entirely sure of myself hunting yet you know right. I, I wasn't necessarily holding out for a buck but you know I didn't want the first one I killed to be the, the tiniest little deer that walked by so right it was a steep learning curve but it wasn't I guess as bad as it could have been right right so with that property being you know where that ground you were cutting your teeth on the family farm mm-hmm. and then you had all these trespassers um you know, coming through all the time, really not, that's not conducive to being successful hunter. How did you approach that? I mean, did you go to your dad or your grandpa and say, Hey man, can you get these people off? Or did you guys just like non-conflict, let them still continue to do what they wanted to do? No, a good in between. I mean, we weren't openly confronting people and all, but my grandpa definitely took steps to gate things off. Um, you know, we're lopping down trees to cover up ATV trails, um, no trespassing stuff. And people eventually got the idea. Yeah. But like I said, it, it would probably be oh, decades that they had just kind of come and gone. And we had never known the difference because we just had it as land, not hunting land. Right. Um, you know, because we're never over there to, to have seen it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it eventually worked itself out. But Right. And then I went off to college, though, and it kind of like regressed a bit. So. Yeah. Uh, hey, that happened the same. Like I was getting into hunting um, in high school a little bit. Well, I, you know, I take that back. I was into hunting probably in middle school 
early into high school, then obviously the social situation changes. I become more involved in sports and um, student council and uh, church youth group and and all that stuff. And then sports kind of ruled the roost for a while. And then I went to college and hunting almost stopped uh, during Mm -hmm. college. I I don't want to say it stopped a hundred percent because I would still go out, but nothing, nothing too serious. And then right out of college, got a job, um, in a big, in a bigger city, didn't go do, you know, was still kind of involved in the social side of things, but how long did it take from you to start hunting you know, when you were 16 until you started finding success? Mm, I think it was the next year I killed my first doe. And then I started bow hunting about that same year, just for, um, well, you know how it is. You can shoot your bow in your backyard and it's a whole lot easier access wise to, to be able to hunt with a bow, I think. So I think that next year, so about two years, not, not too bad, all things considered, right? especially with, no prior context, you know, uh, of any hunting, like nobody taking me with them kind of thing. So, right. So you were able to get in your car or borrow your parents' car, drive to the woods and start hunting and you did it all by yourself. I mean, yeah, pretty much. Like I said, we had family friends who helped. Um, but after a while it was kind of like, yeah. Um, as far as the day to day hunting and all, yeah, I was on my own. Right. Okay. Um, and then it's how... kind of ironic, like, oh, go ahead. no, go ahead. I was going to say, it's kind of ironic. Um, at that time I had never even considered really trying to have a job in the outdoor industry, much less being a writer or anything. But I really did learn a lot from hunting magazines yeah. because there are that good mix of how to with the, the full length features, you know, so you get the passion and you get the how to. So magazines really were a big benefit to me at, at that time and still are. Right. Okay. So over those first couple of years, did you find yourself in a state of limbo where it's just like, okay, hunting. Yeah. Or did you find yourself getting deeper into it and, and, and just like, oh my God, I love it. Definitely deeper into it. Yeah. But, um, when I say deeper, deeper into hunting as a whole, but I was never really like, you meet a lot of guys who are deer hunters and that's all they've ever done and that's all they're passionate about but i think coming into it with no prior context coming into it later not late in life but later than you know a lot of people who grew up six seven eight nine sitting on dad's lap shooting their first deer yeah um i was not so fixated on a specific kind of hunting so i it was totally normal for me and totally open for me to take on duck hunting or take on squirrel hunting or take on um, you know, I'm within PA now I'm trying for a bear, that sort of thing. So right. I've definitely gotten deeper into hunting, but I've also not specialized. Like I, I'm very open to, I, I love all of it. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense, especially when, um, you, it, it almost sounds like you were looking for that. You were looking for something to specialize. Well, Hey, maybe I'm going to try a squirrel hunting cause hell, maybe I'll, maybe I'll like squirrel hunting or, Maybe I'm going to try duck hunting because who knows? Maybe I'll maybe I'll like it more than what I'm currently doing. Um, and I think guy a lot of guys do that because I can remember a time before I you know cannonballed into bow hunting for whitetails. 
I was that guy who wanted to do everything. I wanted to trap. I wanted to fish. I wanted to, you know, go out and shoot squirrels, walk through the woods and shoot squirrels. But, um, something hit me about bow hunting for whitetails. And that's the path that I, uh, decided to go down, but it's not like I, I, don't like anything else it's just that if i'm going to put my time and energy into one thing i'm gonna do white bow hunting whitetails and everything else is hey if i get the time i'll go fishing type of deal yeah yeah so um then it sounds like it was only a couple years after you were 16 that you got in you got a bow and started shooting archery yeah i started actually um so I guess maybe that same fall that I started hunting, I started shooting on my high school's uh, shotgun uh, for uh, for uh, clay shooting. Yeah. So I did that for about a year. And uh, I got the bow the next year. The same family friends were uh, letting me shoot a bow in their backyard one day. And I was like, I guess I like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's uh, I, not that I was going to, again, specialize or anything or, or to the exclusion of one or the other, but. I was just like, yeah, there's something different about bow hunting right. than shooting with a gun. Like, just the access of being able to be in your backyard and just, you know, just drop arrows all day. Right. Um, I, I, even if I wasn't going to hunt with one, I wanted to be involved with archery. So, yeah, maybe a year in, I was like, I can practice more, enjoy it year round. I was like, yeah, I, I got to get in this. So I got my first bow, and really went, uh, and kind of canceled out the shotgun shooting. I, you know, I, I totally quit shooting clays that next year and just shot my bow partly because I was able to practice with it more and get better, but also just the price thing. I, oh I, yeah. You know, I'm shooting the same arrows every time instead of buying $5 boxes of shells over and over and over. <laughs> I, I was like, this just, this just makes more sense for a 17 year old kid. That's right. So arrows are definitely reusable. <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Not, sometimes. Not all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, ha- I was, uh, I don't know, something happened, uh, uh, two weeks ago and I was, I have a little archery range set up in my backyard and, uh, one got away from me and skipped off the top of the bag and headed into some really tall weeds behind my neighbor's house. And I'm like, just thinking about it. I was like, there's probably six arrows in these weeds that I'm going to have to go look for this, uh, this, uh, I guess this winter after everything thaws out and everything's dead and I'll have to go go look for them. But so how, how long was it after you started getting into archery and shooting your bow that you were successful with your bow in the field? I want to say it was the same year. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I want to say it was the same year. Now, when it came to bow hunting, I had no shame. When the first, it, this one was a button head, and I was like, I'm killing that button head. I might not have done it with a rifle, but that one, be, between um, practicing with it more, um, you know, I had been hunting a few years now, so I was more confident just in myself as a hunter, not even just a bow hunter. Drilled that first shot, and I was like, yes, this is this is for me. Yeah. So overwhelmingly, you had a, a better connection with that uh, that kill um, with your bow than anything that you previously killed with like a rifle or a shotgun. Yeah. 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 Like I said, not to knock on guns. I, I still hunt with guns at, at times, but there's something about, there's just something about it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I mean, and that that tends to be a story where if you sat someone down and said, okay, you you're gonna you get to choose what weapon you want to shoot. More people would probably shoot a bow if they had more time, uh, you know, because yeah. you know, that's one thing that I've I've learned a lot is uh, archery obviously takes more time to be persistent with. Um, you got to get closer to the animal. It just takes a lot more time to be an effective quote unquote bow hunter than it does to be uh, a, a gun hunter. You know, some would probably argue against that. You know, you still have to know your your rifle and know how it operates and and be uh, and practice with it. But if you if you sat a guy down and said, "Hey, do you want to be a bow hunter or do you want to be a gun hunter?" I think the I think you'd be surprised that a ton of guys would want to be a bow hunter. And that sounds like that's yeah. where me and you are at. There's a mystique about it that I just don't. I don't know. People, when you when you say the words rifle hunter, it just doesn't have the, the mystique as much as it used to, I right. guess, just because bow hunting is so more prevalent than it used to be. Right, right. So as you then got into college and, you know, even after college, how did you progress more as a bow hunter? Um, were you taking out-of-state trips? Because it sounds like the, the family farm was great to have, but not, you know, the best possible, you know, best possible piece of property to really dig in deep and, and talk and, and basically become a proficient bow hunter on. I mean, I stuck with that as far as the hunting aspect goes. I really didn't travel out of state or anything. Uh, mainly I got into 3d archery. Just, I love 3d archery. It was, um, yeah, it's not hunting, but it, it, it's a good way to, while I was in college, to stay active. You know, I was still using, I was not using target equipment. I was still using my hunting bows, always right. with that in mind, to stay stay sharp for hunting. But uh, that was just a good in-between. It was a good way to, and then even when I traveled, uh, or I moved to um, South Carolina to work at Sporting Classics, just staying in those archery leagues, staying, uh, you know, shooting on the range. Right. Did you ever go through a period where, you were still hunt. You were still doing your archery, but hunting, and maybe because of life, you know, you were busy. Uh, maybe you moved to a state and didn't have either the time to go scout, or you didn't have the property, you know, because you know sometimes that happens. When I moved to Alabama, uh, I was working all the time, and I didn't get the opportunity to go out and scout like I should have take advantage of the public ground um yeah. you know because i was working you know 12 hours a day did you ever go through like a, a a spell where you didn't get to hunt as much as you as much as you liked i would actually say south carolina yeah i was down there two and a half years at a hunting magazine yeah but i arguably did less hunting i did cooler trips obviously yeah um but i probably did less hunting there than i've done even when I was in high school and stuff, because um, a couple guys had leases, but you know, it was small leases and they weren't really uh, able to invite me over. Yeah. I didn't know. I certainly wasn't able to afford a lease or anything at the time. And then South Carolina, it has public land and and I hunted some of the quail and stuff, but as far as deer hunting, I never really got plugged in with public land. So probably that, probably that time. Um, And it was close enough to North Carolina. I was like, I may just go home for the weekend and hunt up there. Right. Right. So, all right. So then, as you start 
you know, you, you're, you're in South Carolina. Did you go from South Carolina then and start moving up to Pennsylvania? Uh, pretty much. I moved back. I actually lived in three states just last year alone. Okay. Uh, started out in South Carolina, moved back in March, beginning of March to North Carolina. I lived there for six, eight months, something like that. And then uh, found out about this job and was like, okay, I'm gone. So I've been in PA since October. Right. Okay. So um, pub, uh, Pennsylvania, one of the highest populated hunter states <laughs> in the entire United yes, it States. Is. Right. How did how did deer hunting change from North Carolina and South Carolina to the move up to uh, Pennsylvania? You will think I'm crazy, but I think because uh, I'm I'm on public land up here, yeah. and I got dropped. You know, I got I got here October fifteenth of last year. So by the time I got plugged in and really felt comfortable and had everything up here ready to go for hunting, it was mid November maybe by the time I got used to the job and and found some places on public land. So it's late. It's late in the season. You know, everybody's everybody's been out there. The whole Orange Army has been marching for a while. I actually think dealing with people on surrounding property in North Carolina prepared me for this. Okay. Because, like, uh, not that they're trespassing up here, not that I'm trespassing, you know what I mean. But to me, other people on public land, it teaches you how to um, appropriately and uh, tactfully uh, interact with other hunters, I would say. Right. So now, you know, I'm setting up last year on a trail and, mm, you know, I'm getting ready to start climbing with my climber. Guy walks by 20, uh, 20 feet away. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, you know, I, I could let that bother me or I could just, you know, this is public land. This is part of it. So, right. Right. So um, what about the deer? I mean, did you see more deer uh, in Pennsylvania in the short amount of time that you hunted last year? Or uh, was it was the overall deer hunting better down south? Uh, it's tough to say because it's public land versus private land. But I will say I saw I saw some deer last year. Mm -hmm. But again, by that point in the season, it was pretty tough. Right. But uh, the scouting that I've done this year, I am very very pleased with what i found on public land so far right um saw tons of sign last year but everything's pretty much nocturnal or dead by the time i got to it but uh yeah, i've already seen some nice bucks in the daylight um you know a few places that i've been to so i think this year being plugged in with it and knowing my spots better I i'm really excited about public land yeah yeah and when you get the opportunity to scout i mean and and that's I like hearing that from you because a lot of guys would take an experience like that and just be like, ah, oh, bah humbug, man. I, I hunt public in Pennsylvania. It's dog crap. And here you are <laughs> saying, hey, man, I've put in a little work and I'm excited about what I've found because of X, Y, and Z. I mean, if I was 62 and trying to do the public land game for the first time. Yeah, that might be different. But what I look at it is, would I rather be out west on 10,000 acres, you know, hunting elk or something like that? Sure. But this is a good facsimile of it, I guess. Like, it's a lot of land. I can traipse all over it. I am, a, you know, quote-unquote public land owner. That sort of thing. Like, yeah, it's something to be excited about. Is it tough? Could be. Is it different? Certainly. 
Right. Um, but you know, I, I'm not 62. I'm 29, and if I have to hike a little bit further, that's a small price to pay. Yeah. And like I said, I'm I'm seeing big bucks, and now I'm in areas where I'm around uh, bears pretty consistently. So, not shot one, and, right. and not really seen one on my time. But you know, I know they're there. So, yeah, right. it's, it, it's cool. It's it's different, but it that's part of the challenge. Absolutely. So what are your expectations going into this upcoming season? Well, I, I, I'm a, a bit of an idiot because I put in for the Pennsylvania elk tag. So I'm still holding out hope somehow I'm going to draw. <laughs> so if I had realistic expectations, I, I'm, I'm hoping to take one of those bucks that I saw. I really feel like I'm in a good spot uh, as long as I can get in there during the season as easily as I have during uh, the summer. Uh, yeah, I feel pretty good. Ideally, hopefully, uh, dreaming wise, I- I'm going to kill an elk, but we'll see about that. Yeah. <laughs> guys, guys who are listening to this and know the, the Pennsylvania lottery system, they know I'm it, not a pipe dream, but it's going to be tough because I think they draw like a few dozen dozen right. tags a year out of however many thousand putting in so but it's nice to dream yeah so. absolutely absolutely are you taking any other out of state like let me back up a sec when you say looking for a good buck in pennsylvania and hoping that mm-hmm. you know you see that what what does that buck look like what's his age what's his what's his rack size uh rack size is still hard to tell because when i've been doing my scouting you know they're still growing but um where he'll be come hunting season i couldn't say three, um, are you are you looking for a probably, three-year-old you looking for something in like the 130s is that 120s something like that you know score I, at this point i'm not even too worried about it yeah. um age-wise i'd like three and a half you know it's public land two yeah. and a half is probably more realistic if i'm being honest yeah um but definitely shoot for what i can um but no pun intended you know right. try for what i can right um you know, it's not even really about the score. I like that Pennsylvania, it, from what I've seen, um, you know, in magazines and stuff growing up and then now being here, Pennsylvania bucks are just wide. Yeah. Maybe not necessarily that tall, but they're really wide. And I just want a stereotypical Pennsylvania buck. Okay. Something that I can say I've earned because the Lord knows I won't have earned it on, <laughs> on public land. <laughs> right. I, I just kind of like a stereotypical buck like that. Just something a little wider than the ears, maybe. Um, yeah, score, scores what it scores. So it really doesn't, it's not like you're after anything specific. You're almost wanting just a good representation of the species. And if a deer comes in and it makes you happy, you're going to, you're going to take it. I've always been like that. Yeah. Now, yeah. You know, um, I've killed a couple of nice axis deer. I've been around nice white tails. Um, but as far as my day to day deer hunting goes, it really is whatever makes me happy. Right. Cause when I duck hunt, now, when I duck hunt, everything is a trophy. Every right. hen, every drake, you know, they're, they're gorgeous. And I don't have to, I don't have to compare anything, but, you know, I, I don't have to compare my drake mallard to somebody else's drake mallard. They're all, they're all great. Right. When it comes to deer hunting, there's always going to be somebody who kills a bigger deer than you. So if you're chasing the score, I think, it's like you're, you're putting pressure on yourself that you're never going to be able to deal with. You're right. never going to be able to live up to. Like, right. Yeah, that makes I, a lot of sense. realistic expectations. Not that there might not be a huge buck right behind the the one I want to shoot, but yeah, just 
it makes me happy, that, that's what I'm going to go for. Because at the end of the day, I'm eating them all. And, uh, you know, they're all unique. Uh, right. So, you know, if they were, yeah, yeah, just just whatever makes me happy. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you, I like that attitude because I wish more people um, would think like that, right? I feel I feel a lot of times people are comparing their um, what they should shoot with an unrealistic expectation of, I say this a lot, the hunting industry or the hunting community, right? Obviously, big, big giant racks get showcased the most, and they are rare, but I feel like a lot of people don't get happy with it or they belittle them, themselves because the deer that they harvest doesn't compare to somebody else's. And that really frustrates me because mm-hmm. I feel that every animal that gets killed should be honored because we're, and when you, when you shoot a deer and go, ah, well, he's not that big or, well, he's not that well, you know, whatever. It's almost mm-hmm. like you're, you're at that point just killing for sport, right? And, and yeah. yeah, you're going to take the meat out of it, but just the comments that people make about, wow, well, yeah, I, I mean, if I don't shoot him, somebody else is going to shoot him or uh, whatever. It just, I don't know. It just seems like excuses for what you shoot doesn't help the sport grow. No, no, I would agree. Yeah. I think, I know for me personally, you know, I go hunting not that I don't enjoy going on a bird hunt with other people or, or being in camp, certainly. But when it comes to me in a stand, I go to be alone. Oh, and yeah. if all I'm doing is coming back, you know, I'm going out there by myself, killing a deer, and then coming back just so I can show everybody else. You know, it doesn't matter what they think when I get back, much less when I'm in the stand. So it's just right. like, I do this for me. If it makes me happy, I do it. Um, like I said, I had no qualms about shooting a button bug. Yeah. You know, if it's legal, uh, if it's ethical, and it makes me happy, that is the end of it. Absolutely. Um, I don't need a thousand likes on Instagram to make it a quality kill. <laughs> That's right. That's a fact. That's a fact. Now, if I get a nice buck and it gets a thousand likes on Instagram, that's that's perfectly fine too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Hey, man, it's so, like if if you're gonna choose two deer to walk by, if you were if you were in control of everything of nature and said, I want to choose a deer to walk by me, hell, who who wouldn't want a bigger buck to walk by him? Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. So, all right. So now you're in Pennsylvania, right? You're going to be playing this public land game for the this year for the full year right you're not coming in halfway um you got your expectation set now i want to kind of circle all the way back to this job at um it's peterson peterson's right peterson's bow hunting yep right now are you writing up now more about actual gear and equipment or do you still do a lot of writing about um like the experience and how to's and whatnot. So most of mine right now has been gear. Uh, Peterson's bow hunting is more gear centric. Um, we still do a lot of hunting. Mm, I do what we call our new gear page. So it's about eight new products that we feature from the industry. And I'll do field tested for new products that are more in depth. Uh, I've written, I'm trying to think, I don't, I don't have a feature in Peterson's yet, but, uh, hopefully with the coming hunting season, you know, getting out there and, and finally having something to put on paper. Right. Yeah. But it, yeah, it's still, it's a good blend of everything. Right. Somehow to definitely 
full length features, you know, celebrating the hunt and then the gear too. Right. How, what's it like writing about gear? Um, that's something that I, I like hunting, uh, or I like hunting equipment. I like to look at it. I like to tinker with it. Um, I always am looking for the latest and greatest, but is it hard to compare two products? Because I feel in the hunting industry, when people do a compare, and maybe this is just me from my very 10,000 foot view of everything, not being able to see the details, everybody mm-hmm. always says good things about products in an article right and they don't necessarily Mm -hmm. criticize it when maybe there is some criticism that is needed how do you go ahead and write a article about gear um, and leave it as unbiased as humanly possible and at the same time have the reader feel like they're not getting duped if that makes sense Hmm. Well, uh, two parts. Uh, thankfully, I've, you know, when you get to a national level publication like Peterson's Building, you're dealing with the major advertisers. You're dealing with great products. So um, for me, I've not really ran into anything where I was like, oh, this is junk. I, I can't write about this or I've got to got to blast it. So really, it's not come up for me right. uh, personally. Now, stepping back, when I was at Sporting Classics, my editor we were, we were talking about something. I forget what it was. Maybe a, a type of ammo or something. And we were just talking about gear in, in general. And he told me about a specific case. Oh, it's maybe in the 90s. I don't know, years ago. But he was talking about this very same thing. And he said, here's what you do. He said, people think, oh, you need to blast them all. He said, really doesn't do any good. He said, if they're bad products, they're going to phase out. Yeah, if it's a particularly egregious thing we'll call it and say, look, this was not up to snuff. But he said, really, people want to know about the good stuff. And he said, pretty much keep it to a positive line. If you don't have anything good to say, just like in life, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. Right. Because running them down, they're going to filter themselves out of the industry. And people are going to know it. You show people the good stuff, tell them, here's what you should be buying. And it'll take care of itself. Right. So then in, in a scenario like that and you have a product come in, you're, you're messing around with it and you're like, oh man, maybe the material that is used to build this thing is poor. Maybe the screws or whatever are come loose. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. all these things. At that point, do you kind of step away from writing about whether you like it or not and just provide the specs? I would say I do that even with products I like, you know. It's nice to throw in when I'm particularly happy with something, but I think that goes back to newspaper writing. If if I'm injecting myself into the story for good or for bad, I, I don't feel like I'm doing my job. I want to give people here is here are poor you know weak screws or here are great features like right. lay it out there. I, I like giving people the data and letting them make their own decisions, and I, and I think readers appreciate that too from what I've seen. Right. So. Now- in in the past, some of the um, articles that I've read in, and I'm not going to name the magazines, but when they when they start talking about gear, right? You have mm. uh, like, oh man, must have bows for 2019 or top five bows for 2019. Some of these companies, they they'll cover a good handful of bows, but the winner always seems to be 
an advertiser or the top two always seem to be an advertiser. Um, is, is that how it works where you guys write, where uh, you're only covering people that are, are partnered with a magazine on an advertising standpoint, or are you covering as much uh, companies as you can? As, as much as we can. Now, there are certain things where it's just limited to space, and, you know, we'll take, uh, not because they're necessarily advertisers, but because, you know, uh, a Botech, a Hoyt, a Matthews, they're at the top of the industry. They do happen to advertise with us, but those are the ones that people want to talk about, too. So. Right. It looks, you know, it could be construed as that if you wanted to come. But it's, it's, we're a national level magazine. We're, we've got the top people. You know, those are the ones that people are going to want to read about. So right. it behooves us to cover the top guys. Right. Um, but we do one every year. It's our, our, for this one, it's 2019, our new gear guide. It goes down at ATA, and then it gets on newsstands in uh, March of every year. We cover everybody. Now, every single product, no, but... We cover advertisers, non-advertisers, um, sort of the same thing. Like, you put it out there, people are going to know what's, um, well, no. um, whether it's garbage yeah. or not. Yeah, and, and even then, we're talking about the new products. It, it's not a, a gear re- review, per se. It's, you know, talking about the new stuff. So, no, um, it, it, it's sort of like um, those reviews, though, like, if it's not good, people will know it, and, and we won't cover it. Right. So we try to keep it the positive ones. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Now, we're running uh, close to the end here. Do you have any out-of-state hunts planned uh, this year? So I don't have anything on the schedule right now. I may go home to North Carolina to hunt with uh, a buddy of mine on his farm. Uh, more than anything, you know, I joke about the elk, and I do hope that comes through. The thing that I'm most excited about probably is here in PA. Uh, you know, I've been around grouse with a shotgun before, but I really want to try for one with a bow, as crazy as that sounds. Like, again, I, I like to dream big. I'm dreaming about elk that I probably won't get and, <laughs> and grouse with a bow. But uh, I, I'm actually going to stay in PA if I can and focus on that. So we'll see. Yeah, absolutely, man. That's not a bad, uh, especially when you're new to an environment, it's you're so new to Pennsylvania, it's almost like an out-of-state hunt for you. It, it really is. And then you throw in so much public land. Like, yeah. like I said, coming from uh, South Carolina where there was scant, scant public land. Yeah. And then even then it was not really conducive to everything I wanted to do. Now you come up here and there's game land everywhere and there's different kinds of game land. There's really mountainous. There's you know all different kinds. So I could find, quote-unquote, a new state's worth of stuff within a couple hours of me. So yeah, absolutely. And worst case, I, I thought about bebopping down to uh, Maryland to hunt just across the line, um, you know, just for, for deer and bear or, you know, I still duck hunt. So maybe going to the Eastern shore cause it's still so near, um, close by. So we'll see. Yeah. What about you? Anything big plan? Well, I'm going on an elk hunt in September. I'm going on a, a mule deer hunt in October. And then, uh, my typical, rut hunt here in iowa and uh i got a full plate this year i just i'm not worried about getting burnout i'm just worried about my wife <laughs> getting burnout of having to take care of the kids because um the, the older i get and the more secure i get 
like from a financial standpoint, you know, like, a, mm-hmm. you know, student loans are starting to get paid off, debt's starting to come yeah. down, um, you know, kids are actually going to be in school uh, now, like my son, he's going four days a week instead of two, my daughter's going to be in first uh-huh. grade and she's going to have, uh, you know, be in school all day long so that there's certain parts of the day where my wife is just going to have one kid now. Uh, when okay. she's at home and that's going to take a load off of her for when I'm gone weeks at a time. You know what I mean? So if she's, if she's happy and, uh, then I'm happy, but we always joke about that term, right? The fall widow. All right. Well, so. here, it's, uh, but that fall widow seems to be creeping closer towards September 1st every single year. And, uh, there you go. when I draw my antelope point in Wyoming, uh, my antelope tag in a couple years, uh, it might be even into August. And uh, when it starts getting into August, then then I'm really going to have to come up with creative ways to convince her that it's okay. <laughs> I like that creative way. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, man, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on and uh, chit-chat with us. Good luck on this uh, public land adventure you got coming up in Pennsylvania. Hopefully everything works out, and uh, you'll have to keep me posted. Thanks, sir. Appreciate you having me. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We are done with another episode. Huge shout-out to Mr. Pardue for hopping on the podcast and chit-chatting with us today. Really appreciate your time. Huge shout-out, as always, to each and every one of you, and thank you for taking time out of your day to uh, download and listen. If you really like this podcast, it does me a big service if you go to iTunes or wherever you download your podcast and leave a five-star review uh, about this podcast and how much you love it, man. Um, That just goes a long ways. Keep an eye out for other giveaways that we're doing this upcoming summer and uh, we should be good uh, on that Uh, we're going to be cranking them out in august and i'm trying to think of what else that we're going to be doing um just putting out more kick-ass content uh, not only through the nine fingers but through the sportsman's nation as well so please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast, man. Uh, you can also go to the Sportsman's Nation website, sportsmansnation.com, and uh, you can listen to all the podcasts there as well. Other than that, la, 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 uh, Facebook and Instagram, make sure you are following. Please go follow and like and subscribe to our Facebook pages and uh, Instagram pages as well because there's a ton of content that comes through there. If you haven't checked out the new short film Tradition, please go check it out on the Sportsman's Nation YouTube channel and you can find it on the Sportsman's Nation Facebook page or the Nine Finger Chronicles Facebook page as well. Other than that, I think we're done here today. Hopefully everybody had a great Monday or has a great Monday and the rest of your week is awesome. And if you're, if you're feeling down and low on yourself, just take a deep breath and keep moving, man. That's uh, that is the only way to get through bad times is to just keep moving forward. And if you're going to be in a tree, man, wear your damn safety harness. Have a good rest of the week.